Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Right. So we are launching today this series called Journey to Easter. I thought I'd start with, with an on-ramp with a quote from, uh, from this guy. Brooks is a New York Times editorialist, also an author of several different books. One of them is called The Social Animal. In his book, The Social Animal, he says this, Researchers have done a lot of work over the last few years analyzing social networks. Turns out, almost everything is contagious. If your friends are obese, you're more likely to be obese. If your friends are happy, you're more likely to be happy. If your friends smoke, you smoke. If, you feel lo- if they feel lonely, you feel lonely. Obviously a, a simplification of, of a complex idea, but there's something contagious about us and about the people you hang out with. Last year we had the three journeys. middle journey was the upward journey where we said, among other things, that who you worship, you resemble. So when we worship God, when we get to know Him, when we get to know what He's like and, and what His character is, and we become more like Him. The same is true for who we hang out with, who we spend time with, our friends, the social networks we're a part of, the, the, the community that you find yourself in, or communities, you're, you're more likely to begin to look, talk, think, act like those people the more you spend time with them, the more you hang out with them, the more... For better or worse, right? For, you know. Amen. Amen. Right? So, so there's something very social about the way we've been created, and yet we also have this propensity to withdraw, to step away, to disengage from, from the community we know will benefit us. There's this weird dynamic that works out in our life. So I found this quote pretty interesting as well. It's by Henry Nowen. It's a pretty famous author from the late uh, 20th century. He says, community is where humility and glory touch. And I had to chew on that idea for, for a little while because it sounds great, but what does that mean? <laughs> right? Community is where humility and glory touch. So I began to think about how the, we've been created in the image of God. God is, is, uh, is, is communal in his, in his nature, if we think about the Trinity, we think about three persons in one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all with the posture of preferring the other. All with the posture of catering to the needs of, favoring, honoring, giving glory to the other. We see this in the interaction between Jesus and, and the Father, in the Gospels, between the, between the interaction with the Holy Spirit, always trying to point people to Jesus, always trying to give honor and glory and preference to the name of Jesus, to the glory of Jesus. And the Father even elevates the Son and says, all will bow at the name of Jesus. All will, all will bow to Jesus. So there's this, there's this preference giving, this preferring the other that's incorporated in the Trinity, in community, in their, in their oneness, that we reflect in the way we've been created, in our very nature, in the way that we've been designed for community. Humility is required in community because the proud want to, want to distance themselves and want to elevate themselves over the mass. But to be humble is to lower yourself and to say, no, these, these are my people. This is my, these are my friends. This is, <laughs> keep laughing. This is who, 
I love, and I'm going to serve them. I'm going to cater to their needs. I'm going to prefer to them. And the glory, glory is honor. Glory is preference and renown. Glory comes when we reflect the image of God with the, in the way we've been designed. So, I mean, the idea of church. Church is this, uh, is this Greek word, ekklesia. It's ek meaning out or out of. And kaleo, which is kaleo ministries in Mexico, is what they're named for. But kaleo is the Greek word to mean to call. So the, so the idea of church is the called out ones. In a, very, in, a, in a very general way, church wasn't just used for Christian people. Church was the people who were called out of isolation into a gathered community. The way that Scripture uses church to refer to the Christian community is that called out people who are called out of isolation to be a worshiping community of God-redeemed people under the Lordship of Jesus. That's the church. Called out to, for the sake of community. So, I mean, to, to make things, to define terms, this building is not the church. We are the church because the church is the, the community of people. So, we are in the series called Journey to Easter. Right? We're journeying, we're, we're moving towards, kind of functioning in the season of Lent, uh, although we're not closely following the, the liturgy, the Lenten liturgy that uh, many churches are, we're, we're recognizing that there's something very valuable about taking the six weeks prior to the resurrection of Jesus as we celebrate and contemplating and reflecting and thinking as a community about what this means. What does it mean to be a part of this thing that God redeemed, this people of God that he called and set apart and sent into the world? What does that mean? So Journey to Easter is our attempt to... to to reflect on that. It's our attempt as a church to, to look at that and to think about how, 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 does this, how does this work? What are some ways, what are some things, what are some aspects of the Christian life that we can look at and, and pull out and examine uh, to, for our benefit as we approach Easter? And as we do that, we want to ask two questions. How does it point to the cross? How does it, being the thing that we're looking at that week, how does it point to the cross? And how is it formed or strengthened in the context of community? So we're trying to ask these two questions every time, for the whole series, every time we, we preach, we want to ask these two questions. The, the, the weeks that we're going to look at are these. And we want to start at, at the end. Start our journey to Easter, our journey toward the resurrection by, by looking at the product of the resurrection. Post-resurrection, what is this thing that God, what is the church? What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to gather together? What does it mean to be a part of this community of God-redeemed people who are focused on Jesus and sent on mission? What does it mean to be the church? So the first week is engage. It's a call to challenge. It's an invitation to engage in community, to engage in this house, to engage in, in the people of God, to be known and to know people, to love and to be loved. It's an invitation for us all to find ways to be challenged to, to, to engage in community. And so that from that place, the reason we want to start at the end is so that from engagement, with God and with others, we can, second week is notice. We can notice God in our midst and in the lives of others. And that from the place of community, we can yield. We can yield our lives to the other. We can yield our preferences to the other. We can yield our needs and our, um, our lives to God and to others. 
so that we can receive in the context of community the forgiveness of God. And, and, and from what we've received, we can give. Right? You, can only, you can only give what you've received. Once we've received forgiveness, then we can look at the opportunities that we have to extend forgiveness. After all, the Lord's Supper, which is called communion, was given in the context of a meal that was shared among disciples and among friends. That's, that's what we want, is to be able to recognize the communal nature of re- what it means to receive from God. So that as we lament, which we have permission to do, recognizing that we are not in the fullness of the kingdom. There's a, there's a yet to come. There's a fullness of God to come. And we can lament at the brokenness of our world, at the reality of injustice, at the reality of, of sin, at the reality of disaster. We can lament because it's not as it should be. But we can do it not in isolation, but in the context of community. Right? We can lament and, and really express our, our, our pain and our grief, not withdrawn from God and others, but engaged with God and others. And then as we lose, as we lose our lives, as we die to ourselves, we can be raised to life in the context of community. And that in community, finally, the, the culmination of this series is Easter morning, Resurrection Day, I prefer to call it, is uh, we can celebrate the resurrection in community together. So that's just a brief overview of what this series is about. We want to start by looking at a passage in Hebrews 10. Most of this series is going to be looking at, through the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to start by looking at Hebrews 10 because it's particularly relevant as we talk about engaging in community, right? Hebrews is a book written to explain what Pastor Cameron said a couple weeks ago is to, is to explain the Old Testament through New Testament paradigm. It's to understand what Jesus has done through the, the Jewish people and, and as, a, as a Jew himself to, to un- and help our understanding of what it means to be the people of God. It's written to the church post-resurrection and it's terribly relevant for us when it comes to understanding community. So we'll read it, we'll talk about it, we'll, give, we'll try to give some context about what it's talking about, and then we'll read it again and unpack it. Sound good? Yeah. Alright. So it starts like this, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God's design from the beginning was to have, has always been, to have for himself a people under his rule with whom he would dwell. A people who love him and love each other. So we can look all the way back if we try to follow the storyline of Scripture from the beginning, from what we, what's laid out for us in Genesis, that there is 
creation, that the stage is set. Adam and Eve are placed in creation, given the, given the mandate to, to steward the earth, to, to populate, to, to create, to have dominion. Under the reign and rule and providential blessing of God, they're given a mandate. And, and, and this scene in the first couple chapters of Genesis ends with rebellion. It ends with a disobedience, a disengagement, a turning of, of, of obedience into uh, disobedience. An eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fall is recorded for us in Genesis 3 and it describes um, the consequences of, of dis, uh, disobedience to God. And there's they exchange the blessing of living under the reign and rule of God with the curses of living in opposition to God's ways. But God's desire remains to have for himself a people under his rule with whom he would dwell. A people who love him and love each other. That doesn't change, and he doesn't compromise his holiness. And so, we see covenants. Just one, as one example, covenants are binding agreements between two parties, simply put. But God establishes covenants throughout the Old Testament with his people to, to promise, one of the common refrains is, I will be your God and you will be my people. We looked at this a couple weeks ago when we talked about practicing the presence of God. And so God establishes these covenants. One of, the, one of the most central ones is his covenant with Abraham, where in Genesis 12, he's, among other things, he says, I will multiply you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, so early, early on, God is not just choosing the nation of Israel among other gods, but he's saying, through you, I'm going to choose a people that I will showcase my glory to the world through. And that's just, that's just the way that God has chosen to orchestrate his, his plan, is to choose a people through whom he would showcase his glory and reveal himself to the nations. Again, in, in later on in the book of Exodus, as one of the basis of, 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 of the Hebrew people, God establishes a covenant with Moses, actually with the nation of Israel, through the mediation of Moses. He establishes a covenant where he lays out uh, a binding agreement about what it looks like to live in relationship with him, ultimately saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And yet we see, to simplify the matter, the covenant is con- continually broken. The, peop- the people of God's end of the, of the bargain is continually not met. And we read about, in, in several different places, one in particular uh, that I'll highlight today, about a new covenant that God seeks to establish with his people. That's going to look a little bit differently. So in Jeremiah 31, we'll just read it. Uh, four verses in Jeremiah 31 talk about this new covenant. Starting in verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
this is powerful language that's looking to the future from Jeremiah's perspective. Jeremiah was a prophet in the, in the exile of the southern kingdom. So he was, he was writing in the context of hearing the word of the Lord, but looking at the, his present reality and saying, this is a far cry from what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. But he's saying, I'm, I, God is establishing a new covenant, not like the old ones. This is going to be new. We know that, even through this exact text in Hebrews, that Jesus is the, is the, it's the blood of Jesus that establishes this new covenant. It's the blood of Jesus that establishes this new covenant, and these are the promises that are, are, are the, the binding agreement on this new covenant. So in, in, in Hebrews 10, we read 19 through 25. Okay, backtrack a little bit. 14 through 18, just a few chapters earlier, the bold right here is what's quoted. These this exact verses are quoted in Hebrews 10 to point to the, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have... Um, the great high priest. So, I'll read them again. This is the covenant I'll make in, with the house of Israel. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. That's done through Jesus. The binding agreement is, is faith put in the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. And for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Again, that's, that looks to, that speaks of the covenant that, that's been made with the people of God and God himself through Jesus. So, we're going to look at Hebrews 10 again, and we're going to point out two assertions and three invitations. Now, some people like to give definitions uh, of these, of, of, like, what's an assertion, what's an invitation? I just thought I'd ask Siri what those things are, and, they can, and then she can tell you, and then we can settle the matter. So, hey Siri. What's define invitation? Invitation means a written or verbal request inviting someone to go somewhere or to do something. So an invitation is written or verbal request to go somewhere or to do something. So there's, I'll just repeat what she said. So that's what an invitation is. Hey Siri, define assertion. Assertion means a confident and forceful statement of fact or belief. Okay, a confident and forceful statement of fact or belief. That was way easier than trying to come up with a definition on my own. <laughs> so we start with two assertions. This is a, these are the givens of this passage. Since this is already true, and since this is already true, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. So the first one is, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This word confidence is just... Terribly important and powerful. I found this when I was looking it up. And this is not from some poetic, like, message-type rendering of, of the word. This is from, like, a really nerdy Greek lexicon dictionary. And it says this word confidence means free and fearless confidence or cheerful courage. Now, what's striking here is that this is confidence to enter the holy places. Wow. This, this phrase, holy places, is the most holy places, which is the most, in the, in, in the ancient Hebrew Old Testament, that's the most restricted place possible. If there's, there's no more restricted place than the holy place. It's the place that the high priest could go one time a year 
Only one person one time a year could go into this place where the very presence of God was, was believed to have dwelt. And so I'm thinking like for the original audience here, they're Hebrews and yet they're Christians and they, 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 they follow Jesus and they know that they're, they're living as Christians. So it's like there's this tension in their mind, I feel like, like there's the most holy places. That's, you can only, only one person can go there. Once, like that's not territory for us. And yet there's something about the blood of Jesus that has invited everyone to enter with confidence into the most holy place. There's something about the access that God gives us through the blood of Jesus that we could never have cleansed ourselves from, never have earned, never have deserved, never have worked our way towards. There's something about the blood of Jesus here that I think it's, it's so important to understand because it's a given. It's assumed. It's an assertion, a matter of statement of fact. That because this is true, then these are the invitations. The second assertion is, since we have a great priest over the house of God, I think what's important here to recognize is that Jesus, which both are referring to Jesus, Jesus is the, the priest and the sacrifice. Right? He's, he's Abraham and Isaac. He's the, he's the mediator and the, the, the meat. He's the mediator and the propitiation. He's, he's playing both roles here. So he's, he's doing it all. And because he's done it all, let us do this, do this, do this. So we want to look at the invitations now. Starts with, let us draw near. I just want to stop with let us. A let us is corporate language. It's spoken, it's an invitation from the inside of the worshiping community. And this is among, among us. We are a people. Now there's an invitation that's put forth from within that community to do something. To go somewhere or to do something. The first invitation is to draw near. Earlier in Hebrews, this, this phrase, to draw near, to come close, is used six times throughout Hebrews. Hebrews 4 talks about, let us draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. What's important, I think, to recognize is that this draw near is put on the back end of all the drawing near that God's already done. It's God who's already drawn near to us in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. It's God who's already drawn near in Christ, taking on flesh, taking on our condition, coming as God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He's done all the drawing near. And this is spoken to a people who've already been forgiven, who've already been redeemed, who've already been saved. And so they're, they're, they're past the curtain. They're already on the other side of the curtain. And yet there's, there's an invitation that remains for them to draw near. There's an invitation that remains for them to, to press forward, to come closer. And so it's not about, am I, am I reconciled? Am I, do I know God or not? Do I, um, am, I, am I forgiven or not? That's, that's, a, that's, that's settled. But now there's a, there's a further invitation to engage in a meaningful and intentional and purposeful relationship with the God of creation to draw near with a true heart, a genuine heart, an honest heart, 
with the full assurance that faith brings, or in full assurance of faith. A heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkled here is, is, is referring to the, to the priestly language of the blood being, being sprinkled as a sacrifice. Our bodies washed with pure water is an allusion to the waters of baptism. This is just, there's all these, all these metaphors, all these language, all these word pictures being used to talk about the, what, what Christ has done. So the first invitation is to draw near to God, to engage with God. Invitation number two is, again, let us, it's not let me, it's let you, it's communal, it's, it's corporate, for us all to come together. And it's let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What does it mean to hold fast? I get this image as I was just kind of thinking about this where, um, where we're holding onto this, onto this rope and hope is the rope and it's tied to the end, to the telos, to the, the end of the story. Hope is the rope. And faith, we walk that rope by faith. And love put that rope there. So it's faith, hope, and love all working together to, to inform our spiritual life. Because l- the greatest of these is love because at, that's the, that remains. right? Faith and hope. Once we're at the end, once the story is completed, those faith and hope have accomplished their purpose. Love remains. But hope is tied to the end. It's, it's anchored in the end of the story. And so we need to know the end of the story because that's our hope. The hope that we have is the end of the story. We know that it's coming to completion because he who promised is faithful. You need to know the faithfulness of God. The more you know the faithfulness of God, the more you can walk and hold that rope because he's faithful. The holding fast is a diligent, determined, persevering holding. And there's something about Chasing after or even being distracted by false hopes that, that, that loosens our grip on the true hope that we have. So we can hope in, you know, a, a promise of a, of a job or, or, or a, even a, a spouse that, that that's my hope. Or, um, you know, a raise or a bonus or a, a new house. I can hope in these things that are they're tangible, that are, I can see them. I, I can hope in what, what I can accomplish through my own, the sweat of my brow. But this is an invitation to hold fast to a much more compelling and complete hope that informs the whole rest of the story. This is an invitation to hold tightly and firmly to a hope that's, that's rooted and, and anchored in the coming of God's kingdom. The consummation of all that God has promised. That's where our hope is anchored. That's what we hold fast to. So the third invitation is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works or love and good deeds. To consider is to to ruminate, to contemplate, to think hard on. But it also implies a decision. Right? You can, you can consider something and then ultimately you land somewhere. So in a business, in a business dealing, it's like, okay, here's my, here's my proposition. Okay, I'm going to consider that. I'll consider that. I'll weigh the pros and cons. 
But then I'm going to decide something. Right? I'm going to make a decision based off of my consideration. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What's, what I thought was surprising to find is that this idea of stir up in and of itself is most often used in the negative sense. Like translated provoke or irritate. Like you, you provoke me to anger. Or you provoked me to slander, or you, you irritated me and now I hate you, type of thing. But this is saying, pro- provoke to love. Like this is the unique sense is that it's, it's paired with the agape. Like provoke me to love, to do the thing I've been created to do, but in my fallen condition, have no capacity to do, but in my restored condition, I should have a, a, new, a, a whole new ability to do because God's spirit lives in me. Provoke to love and to provoke one another to love and to, and to good works. This idea of good works can also just, the idea of good works sounds very formal and very religious. Like, I'm going to do good works, I'm going to do my penance type of thing. But this is also just like wise things or beautiful things. I want to be able to provoke you to do beautiful things, to do the things that, that are inside of you that, that need to be released. To do the things that you were created to do. But this only happens in the context of life on life. Right? This only happens in community. Because if I'm in isolation, if I think that I can do this whole thing on my own, or if I can just kind of have it my way and distance myself from the, the messiness and the, and the, the hypocrisy of formal religion then I, I miss the very thing that God's designed in, in, in community, in restoring a people to himself that would know him and know others, and then make him known to the world. To stir up one another needs to happen in life on life, in relationship. Because I can't provoke you if I don't know you. And if I do, then you're probably going to get the negative sense of it, and you're just going to be mad at me or irritated. Like, who's this guy? But when there's a relationship there, it's worth it. It's worth it to provoke, to stir up one another, to love and good works, because we're, we're, we're more and more living in the design of God, living in the community that he's created and designed for us to be a part of and redeemed us to, to participate in. Which is that people were, were, who dwell under the reign and rule of God, where he knows us and, and we know him, where he loves us and we love him. There's this interaction between all all levels. So then verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You know, there's this idea that that um, individualized spirituality is a modern concept. Like somehow in the 20th, late 20th century, early 21st century, that now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own, I'm going to chart my own course. I'm going to disengage from community and have it my way. But we see a first century example that obviously there was people who were neglecting to meet together. There was, there was, a, there was a, 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 an undercurrent in the hearts of even, even redeemed people who were saying, uh, I don't really want to do that. Like, I would rather stay in my pajamas. 
I would rather stay, you know, just in my, devo- in, my, in my one-on-one time with God. Because I know that he's perfect and I'm close, so let's, <laughs> let's just have it be us. Rather than realize that I don't, if I start to have relationships with people who are going to offend me and wound me and hurt me, who wants that? Right? Wrong. No, but that's real. Th- those things are real. Those things happen. Are we willing to work it out? Are we willing to walk through those things? Are we willing to learn what it means to forgive one another? Because we're all oriented in the same direction, which is being conformed to the image of Jesus for the sake of God's glory and for our own spiritual growth. Not neglecting to meet together. This is easy to do. And we have more and more permissions we can point to to try to do this. Is to neglect the assembly. To neglect the meeting together as the people of God. It's messy, but it's worth it. It's worth it because we, when it's put in the context of God has always desired this. The end of the story is that God reigns and rules over all creation, over all nations, over all peoples who worship him and who love him and who, who live under his, under his reign and rule. Not just in little pockets of, of people, but in integrated to, to the whole system. Fully integrated as, as God's people, maintaining diversity, but reflecting God together and knowing each other. To encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just one last thing to point out. The day is drawing near. Like we, can, we can think that that's, there's this, this fixed thing out in the future, and we're trying to move towards it. We're trying to strive towards it. But this gives us the flip image where the day of the Lord, the coming of the kingdom, the coming of Jesus is drawing near. He's moving toward the present. The future is on its way to the present. And the more we live in that reality, the more we're stirred up to encourage each other, the more we're stirred up to meet together and and not forsake the getting together. And the more we're stirred up to stir one another, to love to do beautiful things, to reflect God's image, to, glory, to glorify God through being who you're created to be, to release the things that are inside of you that God's put there, to showcase his glory, not in isolation, but in community, because that's God's design. And so, where does this hit us? Where does this land? I know it's challenging, it's easy to withdraw, but it's so worth it for your own sake and for the sake of us, for you to engage in community. Whether that's through the life groups that we're trying to put on here, we have nine different locations that we're, um, that we're going to be meeting at through the next six weeks. That's, that should be a great way. We're really hoping that it is. But it's not the end of the story. That's a, that's a, that's a mediated way to... to to make community or to facilitate, you can't force community, but to facilitate a getting together and a real opportunity to, to know each other and to talk about real stuff and to, and to have, you know, to kind of work through the awkwardness of I don't know you, you don't know me, but we're supposed to know each other and so let's, let's talk. To work it out and to, and to be able to get to know each other, it's not the end, but I would encourage you all, if you haven't 
already t- to try to make it to, to one of those. And then we have these men's and women's retreats coming up and they can sound like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work because I, I need to be social. Like so, being social is, is a lot of work, or it can be, especially if you're on the side of introvert, which I'm not. But, so I, I don't have the per, like a hands-on experience, but I, my, Chloe, my wife, is more introverted, and so I, I'm learning the, the, uh, the dynamic. It's, it's hard work to, um, to do this, but it's worth it. I just want to say it's worth it. So, that sounds about right. <laughs> 